Evening, church. Uh, it is good again to see so many faces here tonight. Um, it really just fills my heart with absolute joy uh, just to see everyone here again and to again gather together as the full body in one building. Uh, I really think that that is such a blessing uh, and it really is great to have everyone here tonight and just to again worship God and come before His Word. Uh, you can open your Bibles this evening to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be tonight, Revelation chapter 2. This evening we'll be looking at a church, much like ours, a strong church in a thriving city, most likely a multicultural church, which had previously created an uproar in their city because they had changed the city because of their devotion to God. The city said, who are these people? What is happening here? And this was such a big occurrence that even the economy was threatened because of these Christians in the city, because these Christians would no longer buy the best-selling item in that city, being idols to the god Artemis. So let us turn to the word and see what Jesus has to say to the church in the metropolis of Ephesus. From verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and I've found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us close our eyes in a word of prayer. Church tonight, I just want to ask you again just to pray for yourselves. I pray that the message tonight would impact you and that God really would use it to speak to you specifically tonight. And I'd like to ask you to pray for me. Pray that God would use me and that God would make me effective towards you, that I would be free from error and only speak what God gives me to speak. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that we get to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be effective tonight. That, God, we would have fertile soil within which to plant this word in our hearts tonight. Use me, Lord. Keep me free from error. In your precious name, God. Amen. So I'd like us to cast our minds back a year ago to when we had that very fun first lockdown period, uh, when we were all pretty much in our houses, closed in, and couldn't go anywhere. Well, in that period, I obviously didn't go anywhere, um, and so I needed to, one Saturday, head out towards the hill, 
And so heading to my car, I think, you know what, it's going to be great. We're going to go to the car, turn it on. Not even the dashboard would come on. Not even the dashboard would come on. It was so dead. And so as one does, I call my neighbor up. So I phoned Jabu, and I was like, hey, Jabu, do you have jumper cables? He so graciously got out of bed to come bring me the jumper cables. Much appreciated. Um, but he came to bring me the jumper cables, and we stood there next to his car, plugged the two sets of jumper cables in together, got the car going, drove just past around here, came up this little lip, stalled, and the car was dead again. Um, <laughs> and I realized one thing very, very quickly. You can have all the mechanical parts in a car, the steering wheel, the engine, the drive shaft, the wheels, but if you do not have that one little source of power in your car, it is going nowhere. Right? It is going absolutely nowhere if you do not have that battery. And so I want to look at that, that similar idea, and keep that in your mind as we look at the church in Ephesus tonight. You see, the apostle John, he writes of a vision that he saw. This is speaking of revelation in general, concerning what was to come. But he starts off with a local view in Revelation, a local view. He writes seven letters to seven churches, each church in a different context and each church with different content, but each letter with the same structure. He starts off with a beginning of a description of Jesus and the church that he's writing to. Then he compliments, corrects, or both towards the church. Then he does a call to pay attention to the words that he has said. And lastly, he closes off each letter with a promise. And so having seen Jesus described in the start of this text tonight, we come to his first remarks. And our first remark tonight is a church worthy of praise. A church worthy of praise. He begins with the words, I know. This is such an astounding thing to me as I, as I came to study this passage this week is Jesus has perfect knowledge. That is complete knowledge without flaw or inconsistency. You see, we can so easily turn away from judgment of someone else thinking, you know what, you just don't know me. The problem each of us has is we cannot say that same thing to Jesus. He has the absolute right to praise or to correct because he knows you absolutely, your desires, your actions, your heart, every piece of you. Therefore, he has the authority. You see, this church in Ephesus, he had intimate knowledge of the church, and he has intimate knowledge of us. We cannot say we've been dealt with unfairly by the hand of our Savior when he judges us. But Jesus begins with that which would put a smile on the face of any pastor, the praise. He points to three specific areas of praise. The first one is hard work, their diligent and faithful service. The second, he points to their stand for the truth. And the third, that they did not grow weary. I don't know about you, but this sounds like the church to be at. I mean, imagine being amongst a group of people who are faithfully serving God week in and week out. A church which is described as not becoming exhausted, though they were doing tasks which should have extremely wearied them. That's the language it uses. It should have extremely wearied them, yet they did not grow exhausted. This is a church that always seems to persist despite the trials, and they do so without complaint. And I think this is an area that Central definitely can agree with. A church who stands on the word of God, the truth of Scripture, and is unwilling to be moved from it. We see this especially in their hate of the Nicolaitans, who are seeking to join Christianity with a life of indulgence. 
They said, no way, not in our church. We stand on the word and the word alone. This was definitely no TikTok theology. Our only hope that we can attain to be like this church, to hate people who would seek to distort the truth, that we would be a church that when we call together a work party to do something, that people will come out in their droves. This is a truly outstanding church. By all outwards appearances, this was a solid church that worked hard, had a great outreach, and protected the integrity of the gospel. I hate to say it, but I think that many of us, and possibly even Central a little bit, could not even desire to reach the full extent of the standard that this Ephesian church reached. This was the church to be at. But unfortunately, though all the mechanical parts were there, there comes the dreaded word, but. But. I often wonder if anything good comes after the word but. Thank you for your application, but. You're gifted, but. And you see that word but changes this tone. It changes the tone from praise, this amazing church, to correction. And we need to see that before we go out, and even before we even look at, at striving to be the church of Ephesus, they had all this praise, but Jesus says, but there's one thing wrong. And if you don't fix this one thing, the other things aren't going to matter. If you don't fix that battery, you're going nowhere. And here we see that change of tone again, reaching our second point for tonight, correcting the heart. Correcting the heart. A reminder that the one who knows to praise is the one who knows to disapprove. And here we find the core of tonight's message, turning to verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What a sadness this must be to hear. It's definitely what a pastor wants to hear on their Tuesday meeting. I want to look at this concept through asking three questions. The first question I want to ask tonight is, what was abandoned? What was abandoned? What has been lost? The text says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. I had a week, a week, well, <laughs> I had a friend who got married two weeks ago, and man, did he cry when she walked down that aisle. He was bawling like an absolute child. Seeing her in that white dress and, and realizing that what he had hoped for one day in having a wife to call his own and finding the treasure of a godly one, the love he felt in that moment just overwhelmed him and overflowed to tears. And I hope this is a picture of the moments when we came to know the gospel and have its sweetness cast upon our lips. I can't speak for many of you, but in those moments, in those months, we were stirred up by seemingly unquenchable zeal for the Lord. If there was a prayer meeting, you'd be there. Why attend one service when you can attend two? If you had to walk, even if you had to organize transport, you would be there, and it was a joy to do so. You could not wait for the next Bible study to come around so you could hear the word taught and again be in the fellowship of believers. Communion was this delightful and rich reminder of what had been done for you through Jesus. For some of you, you would sacrifice sleep to spend the time praying to your Lord, and you'd join in every single church event that was possible and be sad when there was no more. 
prayer was such a delight as you got to speak to your father in those intimate moments. The minutes seemed to creep into hours without even noticing it. I know enough people who, when they heard the message of the gospel, when, when they came to see that bride, that they just couldn't keep it in. They had to tell every single person they knew what the gospel was, no matter how clumsy or how awkward it was. Remember back to those times where you would fire question after question to those older Christians around you, seeking to soak in as much as you could, fearing that it would slip from your grasp if you didn't. When you opened your Bible, it appeared to contain all the treasures you ever sought. Your money was no longer your own. Though you had little, you would easily give it all away. We would pray earnestly and and long for those who we knew did not have salvation, that they too would experience the goodness which we experienced. We would be quick to confess our sins, quick to realize our fallenness, quick to see how far we have been lifted up. To quote Meatloaf, you would do anything for love. It was like you woke up every morning and got to look at your groom, God next to you, and you wondered, wow, how could I ever be so fortunate to have found so wonderful a husband? For guys, this is the image of us in Christ, him being our groom. It's what the Bible says, we have to live with it. (laughs) But there was nothing that could stop our walks. There was nothing that could stop us from seeking Jesus by any means possible, just to be near him again. This is where I need to admit, this message may mostly be for me. I don't know about you, but there is a certain experience which happens. That getting up early to pray, which was once so easy, has become a daily struggle. And now sometimes, if you're honest, you fall back asleep. Church attendance has become a debate. We spend reading our time, reading our Bibles, But it seems as if the gold and silver which we once found in those words have turned to dust. And all we can get now are bits of scrap. A tongue that could not stop speaking of Jesus becomes one of complaint and no joy is found for you in speaking of your faith. The prayers for unsaved family and friends seems to have dwindled to an understanding that yes, God can save them, but it seems unlikely he'll do so. The wallet even seems tighter every time the giving sermon comes around. The Bible study that you used to love and look forward to seems like an interruption into your week and a day you could have been resting. Suddenly you wake up and you look next to you and it appears through your eyes that that spouse that you once reveled in just no longer seems as appealing. The word Jesus uses here in in verse 4, that word abandon, I think works well. Because that word, if you look in the original language, is a word that can also be used to describe divorce. No one on their wedding day thinks that divorce would be a possibility. Yet the statistics would tell us that more than 40% of marriages these days end up in divorce as the sparks which once began turn to ice. This here is the accusation labeled in this text. You have divorced yourselves of the love which you had when we first got married. 
I want to repeat that because I think this is a key understanding to how we understand this text. Here's the accusation that's leveled. You have divorced yourselves of the love which you had when we first got married. This is something that nobody ever wants to hear from their spouse. It's something many would dread. We see this from God's perspective in Jeremiah 2 verse 2 when he reminisces and says, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in the land not sown. God remembers the days when you used to be zealous for his name, when you would be on fire for him. A commentator says that Jeremiah 2.2 is the regretful cry of the heavenly bridegroom, recalling the early days of his bride's love, the kindness of her youth, and the love of her vows. I want to hear stress the importance of what's being said. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 to 3 says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The church is accused, the Second Peter 3 verse 5, of having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The heart, which once burned for God, has become cold like the stone it used to be. The affections are all but gone, and only some of the practices remain. I could go on in the many ways in which we may see that we would stand guilty of having departed from our first love of God. But that is for each of you to search his own heart tonight and to be honest before the one who knows all. Well, if this seems common to Christianity, if this seems like the common trend which we see in Christian life, this leads us naturally to the follow-on question. Why has it been abandoned? Right? Why has it been lost? Why has it been lost? Ephesians 2 tells us of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I won't expand on each of these tonight, but rather to comment. Remember what I said about the start of the sermon, about this thriving city. It's so easy to lose our zeal for God because of the world around us. We are people so easily pulled into the next hot thing. Life so easily becomes about having a job or stuff or relationships or any other multitude of things we can so easily fill our hearts with. Our hearts are idol factories, after all. We begin to taste the bit of the world which we used to love. And God stands like Hosea looking at Goma, his ex-prostitute wife, returned to the men she used to be around. We slide back into the ungodly friend groups, and foul language becomes easier on our lips. We fail in exercising our spiritual muscles as life gets busy and work or studies become more important. And I think, honestly, there can be a discouragement from stale, older Christians who say that to be cold is the natural state of the believer. It's only the honeymoon phase. Then it's all commitment and no love. Oh, church, 
May we admit that we have often been careless in preserving our affections for Christ and His gospel. May we be willing to admit that, that we have so often been careless in preserving our love for Christ. And that good news that we heard at first. Have we neglected to hold fast to what we originally had, thinking that it would not slip from our hands? Spurgeon says, it is the loss of your first love that makes you seek the comfort of your bodies instead of the prosperity of your souls. I fear that many of us have fallen from great heights from which we once roamed as we looked more to appease our bodies than to ensure the benefit of what truly matters that is our soul. I find myself crying out with the hymn writer, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If we know now where the problem lies and how we come to be here, we need to ask our final question. How do we get it back? How do we get it back? How do we get those affections back, that zeal we once had, that love we once had for God? How do we recapture that which we had at first? Some I know have reached the point of wondering, can I even get it back? And I have good news for you tonight. If Jesus' call in this text, as we see him state, if his call is to return to their first love, then it must surely be possible to recapture that love. You see, in my car, I thought I'd have to buy a complete new battery. But what a joy to hear that all it needed was a complete recharge. So how do we get it back? How do we get back that zeal we had at first? Jesus tells the church at Ephesus in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The first thing calls for is to remember. It's to remember. A commentator said, if a man has become cold towards his wife, nothing is better suited to reclaim him than to recall to his recollection the time when he led her down the altar, the solemn vow he then made, and the rapture of his heart when he pressed her to his bosom and called her his own. To remember that moment, that moment when we were called out of our darkness into light. To remember that joy we felt in that time. It's the remembrance of these days when love burned bright that allows us to see just how far we have fallen. Recollecting the heights that we once used to be upon reminds us that it is still possible and it reminds us of what is to be hoped for. It's to remember the warmth that once marked our lives and the impact the gospel had upon us. It is this remembrance that brings about the second action that is called for in the text. Repent. Repent. You see, many of us have identified this problem in us that we have grown cold and in an attempt to rekindle the flame have turned to mystical practices, turns to ancient cultures or Buddhist meditation or New Age thinking, psychology or progressivism, thinking that in those other things we'll find what we lost. Church, we will find no joy in these things. We will find no joy in these things. The solution that Jesus gives comes as a question. Are we not all found guilty at some point in our lives of having grown cold? 
Are we not all found guilty at some point in our lives of having grown cold? May we then seek to be found on our knees, grieving and ashamed that we have declined and ought to be condemned for it. And again, seek to throw ourselves upon the grace of Jesus, humbly confessing our own fallenness and our need for redemption. We did so many weeks through Ruth on the redemption story. Let us not, in our pride and arrogance, fail to fall before God and say, God, I've grown cold. God, I've grown cold. Your word no longer excites me. Will we seek to repent, to turn back? The message is clear, and it's on this basis that Jesus tells the church of Ephesus that they could be removed as a light to their city. I found it interesting doing some research that the city of Ephesus doesn't exist today. It doesn't exist, and it first started off with they used to be a thriving city with a port. But as time went on, the port became filled with silt. Thicker and thicker the water became, and more and more it became impossible for ships. And I just found that such a good image of just what happens sometimes with the Christian walk. Does if our lives get filled with silt? This church in Ephesus no longer exists because the city stopped thriving. Without the port there, the city died. If you drift far from a bonfire, you will quickly become cold. But the encouragement is if you again will draw near to it, then you will again become hot. Lastly, Jesus calls to do the works you did at first. Would we return to the prayers we used to pray, the priority in God's word, to the honest reflections of our heart, to receiving communion with that same meaning that it first had when we were zealous for God? Would we again be attentive to the preaching of God's word? Would we pray that every time we come to a service that God would penetrate our hearts? Would we be freely sacrificing of our time, energy, and money for the sake of the body that is the church? Would we return to the generous assistance of those who are struggling, the relieving of the distressed, the raising of the fallen? And especially, would we again open our hearts to see the dying world around us and to see just how much they need the good news of Christ? Would we again open our hearts to see that so many people need that message of the gospel. A rusty knife, when rubbed over with oil, will once again shine. And it is here, at this point, as I remind you, turning back to the works we did at first, that I'd be remiss to not take a pause. You see, you cannot return to that which was never there. You cannot return to that which was never there. Each of us is called, as per 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You see, we need to confirm that our trust in that moment when we were first zealous and on fire was in Christ and Christ alone that we actually place our trust in Him and not in some emotional experience, not in some emotional hype. 
Emotionalism is brief and will always fade. We need to test our hearts. A flame is not said to have died if it never burned in the first place. Jesus concludes this text, this letter to the church in Ephesus. He concludes it by saying, he who has an ear to hear. It's easy to come tonight and think, you know what, this is cast in speaking. This is cast in saying this. This is just my words. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. Jesus speaks to each of us tonight. And he may be saying to you, to you tonight, you have become cold. And do not think that this is a safe place to be. Albert Barnes explains, If they who have left their first love will not repent at the call of their Savior, they have every reason to apprehend some fearful judgment, some awful visitation of His province, providence that shall overcome them in sorrow as a proof of His displeasure. Even though they should be saved, their days may be without comfort and perhaps their last moments without a ray of conscious hope. You see, there's a cost. There's a cost which we bear if we will not again repent. But to those who are once set aflame by the gospel of Jesus, to those who are here tonight and pay attention to what God is saying, there is a promise. To the one who conquers will be given to eat of the tree of life to be in the company of God forever. Saints, may we persevere in seeking to recapture that love we had at first. To again look upon our groom and, and really just rejoice in God. When we picture that day, that wedding day, lay hold of it and grip onto it until the day when we get to experience that relationship in its fullness and we get to delight in His glory forever. Let us pray. Lord, I know that this is not an easy message, God. And God, it's one that presses heavy even on my own heart. But Lord, I do pray that your words, even as you say in your text, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray, God, tonight that, that as someone is really sensing that they have grown cold, that, God, they've lost the love for you, they've lost that passion they had, they've lost what it means to serve you, I pray, God, that they would be drawn to repentance, that, God, they'd be drawn to remember the days when they were on fire for you, and that, God, they would once again do the works they did at first. God, thank you for your sustaining work. Thank you that we get to follow you, and thank you for that promise at the end of our days. May we cling to your cross alone and to nothing else. In your precious name, amen.